This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for June 9th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, a step towards controlling cat populations. Online news editor David Grimm is here to talk about a single-shot cat contraceptive. Also on this week's show, science editor Jake Yeston and researcher Yerzhan Zoldasov join me to discuss going back to the age of the mortar and pestle. We take a look at mechanical chemistry. This is using physical force to push molecules together. We talk about the mystery of why it works and why it might help reduce the amount of solvent used in chemistry. Scientists have been trying for decades to come up with a permanent way to sterilize cats without surgery. And until now, nothing has really worked. Online news editor David Grimm is here to talk about a new single-shot contraceptive that sterilized female cats in a study for multiple years. Hi, Dave. Hey, sir. So no more surprise litters of kittens in barns and under porches? Like, is that really what you want for the world, Dave? Who doesn't want more kittens in the world? But... You know, it turns out, and a lot of people know this already, but, you know, it, and it's not in the United States per se, although overcrowded shelters are still a problem in the U.S., but but really when we're talking about sort of the pet homeless crisis, this is a sort of a worldwide, there's more than 1.5 billion cats and dogs that are essentially strays. And a lot of this is occurring in the developing world where you have these animals roaming streets, getting hit by cars, getting diseases. And also, you know, because especially a place like India, where you have these huge free roaming dog populations that are really concerned for rabies transmission. And in Australia, feral cats are a huge concern for wildlife predation. There have actually been proposed these big culling campaigns that would basically be killing a lot of these animals. So a lot of welfare concerns with having too many cats and dogs in the world. It's not easy right now. The methods that we have today are a surgery by a highly trained professional, one cat at a time, it's expensive and it's, you know, especially for more, again, when we're talking about the developing world, it's really out of the reach of a lot of people. And it's, again, when you're talking about tackling maybe thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of these animals in the street, 
you're not going to be able to necessarily catch every single one of them one by one, take them to a vet clinic, put them under anesthesia, put them under the scalpel, get them recovered. I mean, just it's just insurmountable to try to tackle that problem with something that's as slow and onerous as, as spay-neuter. So this has been a goal for a while then for the, the cat lovers community is to find something that, you know, as a contraceptive that just is like one and done. You don't have to, you know, have follow-up. You don't have to have stitches, nothing like that. And it's not just cats. You know, one of the big organizations, right, the biggest organization behind this is called the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. So it's really cats and dogs. You know, this is an organization since 2000 has really been pushing this idea that spay-neuter is not cutting it. We really need what they say. Their holy grail is single use, so you don't have to do it once, permanent sterilization, cheap, and non-surgical. And this was the dream product, something, you know, like a pill or a shot. You would just give it once to a dog or a cat, and boom, they're sterilized for life. After going a lot uh, down a lot of roads that didn't actually work out, this one that we're talking about today, at least in the lab, has shown some real promise. Yeah, and I should just backtrack for a second. The whole reason that this line of research even exists is because there's a, another organization called the Michelson Foundation, the Michelson Found Animal Foundation, which in 2009 put a lot of money into this idea. They put uh, $50 million of grants and a $25 million prize because this research was really, it was really niche. And like, you know, when you're trying to get grants and yeah, you can get grants for human stuff. You're like, I'm trying to, you know, find a contraceptive for cats and dogs. That's that's harder to get to NIH funding for. So right. Michelson provided tens of millions of dollars, which led to a lot of research projects. But as you said, Sarah, the most promising one is the one we're talking about today. It's really the one that has worked in the last uh, 15 or so years when none of the other ones have really worked. This is a kind of a surprising combination of research that went into this discovery. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, this is an interesting backstory. We have somebody who is sort of studying ovarian cancer as we're trying to figure out in mice in hopes of figuring out people sort of what's happening in the ovaries and what, what hormones are doing what. And this guy named David Pepin, he was working with this hormone called anti-mullerian hormone. Wasn't really sure what it did. It seemed to have some impact on ovaries. And when he found when he put it, the gene in a virus, and so basically created a gene therapy and injected that into mice, the mice started really overexpressing this AMH hormone. And when they did, the follicles in their ovaries that produce eggs, they basically stopped forming. And so the mice were not producing eggs and they were sterile. So he said, hmm, I wonder if we could do the same thing for cats. Yeah. So in the cat situation, this is the same approach then. They would introduce a gene into a virus, inject the virus into the cat, and then the cat overexpresses the hormone and then their ovaries stop producing eggs for fertilization. Yeah, that was the idea. He teamed up with this guy at uh, the Cincinnati Zoo named Bill Swanson, who sort of ironically was actually, his whole deal was trying to get cats to reproduce a lot more. He works with zoo cats and he's doing conservation. And the question is like, how do we get these cats to reproduce more in the zoo? These wild cats, which is sort of exactly the opposite of the whole point here. But because he's an, he was an expert in cat reproduction, he teams up with David Pepin. And as you said, Sarah, they start working on, can we translate this mouse work to the cats? And they did a very similar thing. You know, they put the cat AMH gene in this virus. They injected it into the muscles of cats. Cats, like the mice, started producing high levels of this AMH hormone. And lo and behold, when they put the cats together with males up to almost two years after getting the single injection, the cats did not conceive either because they would refuse to mate with the males or even when they did mate with the males, they couldn't have kittens. 
their follicles didn't seem to be developing to the point where they were able to produce eggs, and so they couldn't conceive. What about the hormones? You know, do they see any changes in the cat's behavior? For the most part, the cats seemed pretty normal. They seem to be going through the, the normal hormonal cycles. The researchers aren't exactly sure how the AMH is working here. They think it might, like it sort of does in the mice, somehow disrupting the follicles, the formation of the follicles. And so they're not maturing enough to produce the eggs. And if you don't have eggs, then there's nothing to fertilize when the male cat mates with the female. I think you mentioned some of the timing here, but how long have they had this gene therapy and how long have they been observed at this point? These are young cats or about a year old female cats. They got this one-time gene therapy injection. The team's been following them in the paper for at least two years. But when I talked to the team, one of these cats has been followed up to five years. Oh, wow. And when they put these, the females with males, it was eight months and 20 months after the injection in neither of those cases. So up to at least 20 months, these cats weren't able to get pregnant. And up to at least five years, at least with one of the cats they'd monitored for that long, that cat is still producing elevated levels of this AMH hormone. They don't know if that cat can't become pregnant, but again, it's producing those high levels, which would seem, which seems to be the key in blocking the cats from being able to conceive. This kind of technique for introducing genes into an animal, it doesn't combine and like join the DNA and divide with cells or anything like that. So there is a chance that it'll just go away at some point, right? Right. So this DNA doesn't integrate into the cat's genome. It replicates inside the cells, inside the muscle cells, because it doesn't become a permanent part of the cat. It does suggest that perhaps it won't last forever. Five years is pretty good, though, for a wild cat or a feral cat. Right. If you give it five years of not breeding, that is a, that's a pretty effective measure for population control. It's, yes, exactly. You know, especially since the alternative right now is, is really onerous or not, or not really not being able to do anything at all. Yeah. So what's next for this uh, approach? What you talked about, there's a few of these cats left still in the study. You know, are they going to expand it out or like what, what, what's next? Because it's still a little unclear about how this works. And because there's also, there's, a, there's a big benefits to spay and neuter. I mean, it's expensive and it's time consuming, but we know it's permanent and it does prevent also cats and dogs from going into heat. And if you've ever lived with a cat or a dog in heat, you know, that's not a fun thing. It's not clear that this approach prevents that. Also, spay-neuter does seem to prevent some potential diseases like some mammary cancers. And so there's some open questions about what's the behavior of cats sterilized via this method. Is this approach protective in the same way spay-neuter is protective? The other billion-dollar question is dogs. Will this work in dogs as well? Because Solving the cat overpopulation crisis is just half the equation. Dogs are the other half. So the question is, you know, will this, this approach work in, in dogs or at least female dogs as well? If this does hold up for a few more experiments, is the plan then to commercialize it and sell a gene therapy for cat contraception and dog contraception? Right. So the Michelson Foundation, which helped fund this work, their whole thing is like once we see a product that we've been looking for, they jump in and they start helping out with commercialization. So Michelson's actually in talks right now with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about what next steps have to happen here. But some of the big ones are more safety and efficacy studies. Also, we've got to get the cost down. This is a therapy that can be very expensive. Right. And in order for this to be really viable, especially in the developing world, you really got to get the cost down. And that's, so that's another big hurdle. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find a link to the article that we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we hear from editor Jake Yesen and researcher Yerjan Zoldasov about dry mechanical chemistry. It's a lot more juicy than it sounds. 
This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Here's a question for you chemists out there. Why did the mortar and pestle go out of style? Why don't we just mix chemicals together, dry, you know, with some grinding, and see what we get from that? This is something that's actually done today with something called a ball mill, which we will get to a little bit later. But most of the time, these days, chemical reactions are done in solution, in masses of liquid solvent. So there's a paper this week in Science that looks into this, what's happening in a ball mill or a mortar and pestle, and how better understanding that might help us get away from solvents and focus more on mechanical chemistry. I spoke with a researcher from the paper, Jurgen Joldasov, as well as a science editor, Jake Yeston. He leads the physical sciences team, and he focuses on chemistry. Here's Jake. When you think about chemistry, it's a surprisingly passive process. You know, it's not like building a house or knitting a sweater, right? Basically, what you do is you put two or three different kinds of chemicals together in a solvent and you hope that they bump into each other and they turn into the product that you want. And what's remarkable is that over the course of a few hundred years, we've figured out which types of things to put together to make that happen. But the reason that you usually do it in a solvent is that that increases the likelihood that the two things are going to bump into each other. In mechanical chemistry, you're basically just pushing the molecules together. You do get results, you do get products from this, but chemists really do not know what is happening in these situations where you're just mixing molecules together and applying pressure. It's just a complete black box in a lot of ways. I spoke to Yerjan. He's the researcher who published a paper this week in Science on trying to better understand this interaction between mechanical forces and chemical reactions. The primary goal of this study is to investigate the effect of mechanical energy on chemical reactions at molecular level. Mechanochemistry uh, involves the use of mechanical energy to form or break chemical reactions, chemical bonds. Mechanochemistry provides several advantages. It can provide shortening reaction timers, better selectivity, lower energy demand, etc. When Jake, the editor, first brought this research up in a meeting where a group of editors all get together to discuss upcoming papers, he started off by saying, oh, this is about ball mills, which everybody knows about. And no, everyone did not know about ball mills. Yeah, I, I remember I, I got that question from the biologist. <laughs> yeah. He sort of said, we've never heard of a ball mill. So a ball mill is a very old technology, and they use it actually when they manufacture cement. What it is, is a hard container of some sort that contains steel balls. And you put something in it, and then you turn it around, and the balls grind the stuff into a fine powder. So you can imagine if you're making cement, you know, it starts out as these sort of big pieces of rock, 
and you put it in the ball mill and the balls move around and, and grind it into a powder. And in that context, it's a, a pretty macroscopic process. But it turns out that you can also use a ball mill to do molecular chemical reactions. And so if you think about it, right, we're talking now a scale that's a million times smaller than the the sort of powder that you would make from a rock. And so the question is, how does that work, right? It's actually a little bit surprising because you think about, well, what's happening when the powder gets between these balls is, are you really putting individual molecules in contact with each other, or are you just sort of rolling the powder around? And so in some sense, it's a little little bit surprising that this actually works. One of the advantages of doing this kind of mechanical chemistry is that it's dry. You don't need solvents. In some cases, solvent might reach up to 85, 90% of total reaction mass, and we have to heat them, cool them. That requires energy. It also produces a lot of waste. When you use solvent, there's a lot of it left over. So you have to figure out what to do with it. And the second problem is that it contains a lot of sort of uncertain dilute impurities, maybe some sort of weird byproduct, and you might not even know how much is there or even precisely what it is. But it's the sort of thing where you think, well, I don't really want to reuse this solvent because who knows what's in there, right? I don't want that weird impurity to be in my pharmaceutical But then you have a huge waste problem. Yeah, Jake, this is like when you're in a lab and you're like, okay, this is where solvent waste goes. And you just have this big carboy or whatever, and you're just dumping stuff into it. And and the irony is then, you know, you write on the outside of this giant bottle, what does it contain? You say, well, you know, it it contains (laughs) acetone and ethyl acetate, right? And, you know, when you look at those in the new bottle, they're these beautiful clear liquids. And of course, when you look at the waste, it's this black bubbly ooze. Yeah, exactly. And so you think, well, it's got it's got some other stuff in there, right? Yeah. And we're doing that on an industrial scale. Yes. That's happening in the factories that are making chemicals for sale. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So there are definitely some advantages to mechanical chemistry, but we really need to know how it works, how to apply force, how much force, the direction of that force in order to come up with the parameters for chemists so they can explore this as a viable option. They need to know what's happening at the molecular level. So for Yurjan's study, they didn't use ball mills for obvious reasons. You can't really see inside of some vessel that's shaking and throwing a bunch of balls around. Like, it's not easy to kind of look at whatever is going on at the atomic or molecular level. Exactly, exactly. One of these limitations, we cannot investigate Microscopic, uh, microscopic parameters. For example, in ball mills, we can investigate effect of ball mass, ball diameter, material, time, frequency, etc. All these parameters are microscopic parameters that don't provide molecular level effects. So to control the physical interaction of these molecules, they had to use these tiny little tips. Our tips height is around 21, 22 micrometer, and the tip size at the very tip, it's below 100 nanometers. So only limited amount of molecules are exposed by these tips. They coated these tips with one of the reactants that they were using. And then for the second reactant, they laid it down on a surface. And then they were able to position the tips to push one molecule into another. And when we basically push tips onto the surface, 
forcing these two reactants to react with each other for a certain time and certain force. By piezo actuator, you can control time and the force simultaneously. And the one aspect of this uh, reaction setup is tip arrays and the substrate under lead. They are tilted with respect to each other. So during one print, you can apply a wide variety of force ranges. And this works. They're able to see speedy reactions when the tips are pushing on the right pair of molecules in the right orientation for the right amount of time and pressure. I think most chemists really sort of do a double take about the fact that it actually works. Right. Because so many chemists have been using solvent for so long. And it could have been a, you know, a mortar and pestle all along. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's, that's what this paper is trying to get to the bottom of is because we thought, well, obviously you have to put it in a solvent. You, you know, powder isn't just going to react with other powder. Even though we know, you know, gases are attacking solids all the time. Solids are interacting with each other. Why not? Oftentimes those reactions happen over a very long time. And that's what, what this paper really gets at. It happens shockingly fast. Mm -hmm. And that's the remarkable thing that they find out in this paper. What they find out is that reason is if you apply pressure in just the right way, it has a remarkably accelerating effect on the reaction, much greater in proportion to the pressure that you're applying than people otherwise would have guessed. So, Yerjan, what were some of the important factors for these chemical reactions to go forward? First, dependence of reaction rates on applied force or pressure is very strong, unexpectedly strong. And the second, we studied four different reactions and the different molecules have different sensitivity to the applied force. One molecule can be accelerated by a mechanical force compared to other molecules. And this depends on their structure. So what they had to do there in the experiment was to immobilize everything and then push it together with a very specific amount of force and, and in a specific direction. And what they were doing that to is this kind of a, a reaction that maybe people might actually be familiar with. Could you talk a little bit about the components here? So this is the Diels-Alder reaction. Chemists love this reaction. It's almost 100 years old. It's named after the two German chemists who discovered it in the 1920s. What's great about this reaction is that it's extremely clean. There are very rarely any byproducts. It happens fast. It creates a six-membered ring. And six-membered rings are very common in the sorts of organic compounds that show up in biochemistry and in pharmaceuticals. And it turns out that people have studied this reaction in a ball mill already, but that's not at the fine level of this paper controlling precisely how much force you're applying. And so that, that's what this paper is really bringing to the table. Now, is it a perfect model for a ball mill? Probably not. But it's another approach to answering this question that I think will give chemists a lot to think about when they move on to trying to understand more complicated reactions in a ball mill. Right. There might be different forces, different angles that will become more important depending on what, what your reagents are. Yes, exactly. One way to look at this paper is that it is helping to explain why this powder mixing process works. Because if you think about surface area, it's remarkable that just mixing macroscopic powders between macroscopic balls is going to get these 
two partners in close enough contact to react. And what I think this paper is saying is, well, what's going to happen once in a while is that when you're applying this asymmetric pressure, when, when the balls happen to catch everything in just the right orientation, boom, that reaction is going to go especially quickly. Speaking of energy, in a solvent-based system, you're going to have to heat the solvent to get things to move a bit quicker. And in the situation here with mechanical chemistry, you don't have to do that. You do have to expend energy for the mechanical force. How do these two things compare, the energy required for mechanical force versus the energy for heating up solvent? This is very interesting and very challenging question. Okay. One of the fundamental challenges in mechanical chemistry is to understand the kinetics, which we are trying to do. And second, understand the energetics of the mechanochemical reactions. We cannot directly compare uh, effect of mechanical energy to the effect of heat. Okay, well, so what do you want to do next? Do you want to try different reacting partners, different variables on how your force is applied? What kind of experiments do you think should come next? Next step is to apply these findings to another reaction system. For example, we can translate results of this study to the mechanochemical studies using ball mills. In our case, we are using uniaxial compression from one direction. It would be very interesting to replicate the result of this work by ball mills, where we have combination of forces, shear force, impact force, compression, friction, etc. If you can replicate it, it's a huge uh, step forward for scalability or transforming these findings to the industry-level chemical processes. Say this this goes ahead and we start to kind of see the application of this more widely to different reactions. One of the things that happens at the end of a in-solution chemical reaction is you don't want the solvent, you don't want the byproducts, and you actually have to separate it all out. Yes. How do you do that when it's dry mechanical chemistry? The one that you did here, you're in pretty good shape. You don't have to worry about this as much, but like it, it, you know, as you expand it out to different reaction sets, how are you going to get out the final product that you want? Very tricky question, and uh, probably you got me here. <laughs> Most researchers don't say it in scientific reports. Uh, we don't specify it, but it's a very tricky question. After we completed mechanical reactions in ball mill, we have to open the vial and uh, to isolate and separate products from byproducts, we have to still use solvents. Traditional setup. But is it less anyway because yes. you didn't use it for the main reaction? Absolutely. Also, in some cases, product of uh, mechanochemical reaction usually provides higher conversion of reactants to the uh, product. So mostly we get full product, one type of product. So it's easier to isolate. There's another way of looking at this paper. And, and uh, Paul Weiss, who's a, a professor at UCLA and specializes in um, scanning probe microscopy, what he says in that perspective is that maybe we could think about using this technique for its own sake, right? So not just modeling ball mills, but you know, what if we could figure out a way of doing really novel chemistry by precisely orienting and pushing together molecules? There's been a lot of work done on pulling molecules apart. That already is pretty well known, but the idea of purposely pushing things together in just the right way that's relatively new, and that's got some potentially exciting prospects, especially if at a small scale you want to make some really weird-looking molecules. That was Jake Yeston. He's an editor at Science. He leads a physical sciences group, and his focus is chemistry. We also heard from Jurgen Zoldozov. 
He's a Ph.D. candidate in chemistry at the City University of New York. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a related perspective at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.